Take your Bibles out this morning and turn back with me to the book of Revelation as we continue our series on this book. And you'll notice today a, a very politically incorrect title. The fat lady's warming up. She's not singing yet, but she's rehearsing. So uh, Revelation 15 and 16. It's almost unfortunate that there's a chapter division between the two chapters uh, because this, this pericope of scripture, this unit of thought really goes together. Now folks, before we stand for the reading of God's word, I would like to say a few words uh, about this scripture passage. You know, when we gather on Sunday morning to look at a passage such as we will study today, somebody might be tempted to say, what does a passage like this have to do with me now? They may go on to say, right now I'm dealing with a rebellious child or a job loss. Or maybe there's somebody at work that's very difficult for me to deal with. And so what does studying a passage like this have to do with my life right now? But I want you to consider something. As we study this passage today, it pulls us back to get a glimpse of the big picture. It's like a photographer who would take a close-up of your family and then he would do a wide-angle shot to get all the landscape around your family and behind you. He would want to include all of that in with your family picture as well. Well, this passage kind of pulls us back to look at the overall landscape. And as we face the close-up challenges of each and every day, a passage like this helps us to keep the big picture in perspective. 1 John 2.15 says we're not to love the world or the things of the world. If we love the world and the things of the world, then the love of the Father is not in us. And then he goes on to say there that this world is passing away. And so if we spend all of our time and all of our energies investing uh, in what is all around us at our fingertips today and we miss what God is up to, we're making a very poor investment. It'd be like you or me this week. What if you were to spend 15 hours a day this whole entire next week Building a shed, for example, in your backyard. What if you knew that at the end of the week a storm was going to come through your neighborhood and completely destroy that shed and scatter it all over your neighborhood? Would you be so concerned about 15 hours a day right now building it? No. 2 Peter 3 reminds us that we are to be a people who are looking for the new heavens and the new earth. Because God's going to destroy this. And so we're to be a people looking for that new heavens and a new earth where the Bible tells us that righteousness dwells. Well, with that, I want you to stand with me for the reading of God's Word. And, and we're going to read chapter 15 now and then chapter 16 later on in the context of the message. John says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast in its image and the number of its names standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations." Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. 
After this I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was open, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chest, and one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls, full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. The sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from His power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. Father, we are so thankful that in your word, you have told us both the bad news as well as the good news. No one can say, but I did not know, because you've spelled it out for us. Lord, there is judgment that is coming. But we're so grateful that the Bible teaches us that you sent your only son. That there on the cross, he died in our place. And he took the wrath of God against sin and died as our sin sacrifice. He died as our substitute. So that then the scripture is able to say for those now who are in Christ, There is no condemnation. Father, I pray that if there is even one within the sound of my voice that does not have a relationship with you through Christ, that they would flee to you today, that they might find mercy and grace. Father, I pray that we would not be as those that we read about in chapter 16 in a moment. That as you unleash judgment on the face of the earth, they only continually harden their hearts. Lord, may our hearts be pliable and moldable to you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Folks, we know that when people think about the future, they worry about many various things. For instance, some people worry about the economy, the state of the economy. Now, this week we learned some news about the economy and it was sort of good news, bad news. We learned that the growth rate of the economy for the first quarter of 2013 has been 2.5%. And the bad news is that after a recession, if it's a healthy recovery, it ought to be somewhere between 4 and 6%. And so 2.5% indicates a pretty sluggish economy, a pretty sluggish recovery. Well, that's the bad news. But the good news is it was 2.5%. It wasn't in the negative. As others think about the world today, they think about the state of the world, the condition of nations and what's going on. They worry about one nation rising up against another nation and and, uh, are we going to get involved in some of this? For instance, again, this week and last week, we learned about Syria. They've now used uh, chemical weapons on their own people. And so what's the U.S. response going to be to that? What's the world response going to be to that? Are we going to see yet another Middle East crisis develop? Perhaps so. Some people worry about that. Others worry about terrorism and the new face of terrorism. They think if I take my children to a large sporting event, something like the Boston Marathon, are we going to see more things like that happen? That we're just standing around in the crowd and bombs go off and some people are killed and, and some people are maimed. If I go to an event like that, is that going to happen to my family? 
Is this going to be the new face of America and challenges that we face? People today worry about all sorts of things, but folks, what lost people ought to be worried about most of all is not what man is going to do, but what is God going to do? Now all of these judgments that we've been reading about on Sunday mornings are a reminder to us of what God is going to bring to pass one day. God is going to judge this world and bring things as we now know them crashing down. Throughout human history, God has judged mankind. He judged Adam and Eve. He expelled them from the garden. That was a judgment. He destroyed the world by flood during the days of Noah. That was a judgment. He carried the people of Judah away to Babylon for 70 years. Again, that was a judgment. God's judgments come in various forms. Sometimes they come in the form of sowing and reaping. You reap what you sow. Sometimes it's a cataclysmic event, again, like Noah's flood. Romans 1 tells us about a different kind of judgment that we we tend to overlook. Romans 1 tells us that there is a process of current judgment. Men will suppress the truth of God and then when they do that, When men know the word of God, they know the truth of God and yet they choose to ignore it or sweep it under the carpet and go a different way. Romans 1 tells us that God then opens the door in their lives to a depraved mind and depraved passions. And Paul goes on to catalog what that looks like. When that happens in society. There's all sorts of perverse things that begin to happen. There's sexual immorality and rampant homosexuality. And then, and then men promoting things like we see men promoting today. Same-sex marriage and a, and a whole host of other things. There's idolatry, there's ruthlessness, there's a violence in society. And the Apostle Paul is saying in Romans 1, when we see those type of things going on in society and we see those type of things being promoted in society, it is an indication that God has already turned them over to his orge, his judgment. In other words, his judgment is not simply future. It's not simply eschatological. Oh, yes, it's that. But it's also current, even now. And Paul says, how can you know if a society is under the current judgment of God because we see all of these things taking place in society and we know that God has turned us over to a depraved mind and degraded passions. And so the judgment of God is also current. There's different kinds of judgment. Now, a wonderful paradox in the Word of God is how God is wooing people to Himself in His mercy. And at the same time, He's pouring out His wrath on unbelief. He's doing both. For example, we've seen in Revelation that even in the midst of these judgments, God has the 144,000 sealed. He has the two witnesses of chapter 11. And he has the three angels that we've seen flying about in the midair preaching the gospel. He's warning men over and over again to flee the wrath that is to come. And some indeed do come to faith in Christ during even the tribulation. And so there is mercy and salvation in the midst of judgment and destruction. 
Now, with each passing chapter in the book of Revelation, we see the waves of God's judgment uh, beating ever more furiously against the shores of the earth. And we're learning here in this series as we go through the book of Revelation that we're nearing the end. The fat lady isn't singing yet, but she's in the rehearsal room warming up. Now, Revelation 15 and 16 presents the final outpouring of God's wrath before Christ returns. And these two chapters go together. They need to be viewed together. It's almost as though chapter 15 introduces chapter 16. And today we'll see the rapidity and the severity of God's final judgments represented by seven bowls of wrath that are poured out. We will see the reality of what the book of Hebrews says that it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Now the first thing I want you to notice with me today is what John sees. Look with me at verses 1 and 2. He says, Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image, and the number of its name standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. We're told here that John sees another sign in heaven. Now keep in mind something about the book of Revelation. In the book of Revelation, we kind of jump between events that are going on in heaven and then the next chapter we read might be events that are going on on the earth and then in the next chapter again, we might be in heaven. John sort of goes back and forth between looking at scenes on the earth and looking at scenes in heaven. And as he looks at those scenes that are in heaven going on, what he notices is that the saints of God who are already there ahead of us, along with the angels, are gathered around the throne of God and they are worshiping and praising God and there's a celebration going on and they are serving God eternally. And they're at peace. And meanwhile, on the earth, all of these terrible things are happening that John tells us about. Well, John sees another sign here that he describes as great. The sign is great because it contains the final outpouring of God's wrath on the wicked, unrepentant sinners of the earth. Now the sign consists of seven angels who had seven plagues. The word plague here literally means a blow or a wound. And so these plagues are powerful, deadly blows that will strike the earth with a fearsome force. Now they're described as being the last because in them the wrath of God is finished or filled up. The wrath of God is brought to a completion. Now in addition to seeing these angels, John saw as it were a sea of glass mixed with fire and those who had come off victorious from the beast and from his image and from the number of his name standing on the sea of glass holding harps of God. Now this is no ordinary sea. He says as it were a sea of glass. And so John sees this crystal platform before the throne of God and this sea of glass reflects the glory of God. And it's mixed with fire which is a symbol of judgment. Folks, that reminds us that God's holiness and His justice go together right along with His glory. And the fact that the saints are standing on this sea of glass shows God's faithfulness in upholding His children. They have been given ultimate victory over the beast. Now remember we were told back in chapter 13 
that it was given to the beast, to the Antichrist that is, to make war against God's saints and to even overcome them. Later on in chapter 13, we were told that the second beast, the false prophet, had power to kill all of those who did not receive the mark of the beast. And so from man's standpoint of view, it may look like these saints were defeated. But from God's standpoint of view, those who refused to worship the beast were actually the ones who were given the victory. Here they are standing before the throne of God in heaven. They're standing on this platform that's like the crystal sea. And they're there before God and they're holding their hearts. And they're taking place in the heavenly celebration and they are at peace. And so who is it that really got the victory? They did. Folks, we need to understand something here. As the Bible states, God's children are not exempt from trial and tribulation on this earth. I don't know where we got the idea somewhere along the lines that Christians don't suffer. Or that bad things don't happen to God's children on this earth. Now we know just like we see here there's ultimate victory but Jesus told his disciples before he left them he said in this world you will have tribulation but be of good cheer I've overcome the world. Folks, when we try to live right side up in an upside down world and we try to be salt and light to this culture, guess what? There are going to be those who oppose us and we're going to go through trials and tribulations. Sometimes the people of God go through some pretty deep valleys. They face some dark days. And we're not to think that something is strange happening to us if we encounter some of that. We need to keep in our minds that we are not home yet. This world is not our home. There are some people that are trying to build castles on this earth as though they're going to be here forever and ever and ever. But the saints of God know that we are not home yet and so we're to be investing in eternity. But meanwhile, we might suffer. These tribulation saints suffered. They suffered at the hands of the Antichrist. They suffered at the hands uh, of their fellow man in the culture who was going along with the Antichrist and opposing Christians who had biblical convictions and they were living for Jesus. Jesus said in John 15, don't be surprised if the world hates you. Know that it hated me first and the servant is not greater than the master. And then in the book of James, God tells us how that that God can even use trial and tribulation for a purpose in our lives. Sometimes God allows, as James says in James 1, 2 and following, that various trials come into our lives that we fall into and he uses the same word that was used uh, of the guy in the story of of the Good Samaritan, the guy who was going on that road down to Jericho and while he was going on that road down to Jericho, he fell among thieves. And James uses that same word in the Greek to talk about how sometimes God's children fall among trials. We don't get up in the morning and say, God, bring me some trial and tribulation today. As we go through the day, those things just come on us. Sometimes it's like we have fallen into them and we think, man, where in the world did that come from? And James says the Christian needs to have a better attitude than the man in the world. The man in the world curses hardship. But the man of faith says, "Uh uh-huh, let's see how God might want to use this in my life. To build patience and a greater maturity in my faith. 
And so James says we need to look at trials differently. And then you go to the very next book in the Bible. You go to 1 Peter. The, you know, the general epistles and then the, and then the specific letters and epistles to, to different congregations. Both of these, whether they're the general epistles or the specific ones, they tell us so much about Christian living. And James is more of a general epistle as is 1 Peter. He's talking to Christians scattered everywhere. And he says, I want you to understand something. You've got this great inheritance laid up in store for you and God is reserving your heavenly inheritance for you until you receive it one day. He's preserving you. But he says, understand something. In the meantime, you might go through trials. And God, the way God is treating you is the way you could go in and and see how gold is produced, how they heat up. Uh, the gold and the liquid, they get it so hot it's liquid and the dross, the impurities come to the top and they pour off the dross and then more impurities come to the top and they pour that off. They continue that process until there's no more impurity that comes to the top and then they have the pure product. And Peter says that's how God oftentimes does the believer's life with trial. He's using those trials to sand down some of the rough places in our life so that in the end, we're a more mature believer. And the saints of God have always gone through this. I mean, you go all the way back to the beginning of the Bible. I think of Jacob, for instance. Jacob, who made all these promises, all these commitments to God, and then uh, Jacob ran off uh, with with much of his life in coming years, and he just kind of got caught up in the world. And finally, when he was going back and he knew he was going to meet his brother Esau, he was scared to death, and he wrestled with God all night one night, and God had to break Jacob. There were some things in Jacob's life that God had to get him broken and humbled. And when he accomplished that in Jacob's life he gave Jacob a new name Jacob was no longer Jacob the trickster, the deceiver but he was given the name Israel a prince with God Joseph same thing God had great things in store for Joseph to use him as the prime minister of Egypt so that his nation would be saved because his brothers would come down there to get grain. And look at all the things that Joseph went through in his life, being hated and despised by his brothers and thrown into prison all those years in prison. But through that trial and tribulation, through that valley, God ended up elevating Joseph and giving him a great place in life. You see, after God grows our character, then God can give us an assignment some people want an assignment from God with a character that hasn't been transformed yet it doesn't work that way and God's, so God might use trial and tribulation to grow our character so we're ready for his assignment We come to the New Testament and we see how even the Apostle Paul had trials. He dealt with that thorn in the flesh. He talks about a man, speaking of himself, carried up to the third heaven. And he saw things that a man is not even allowed to speak about. And he says, so that I wouldn't be exalted above measure, God gave me a thorn in the flesh to keep me riveted to the earth. It's very graphic language in the Greek. He was exalted up to heaven. He saw things in heaven not allowable for a man to see. And then God sent him back down to the earth and riveted him, uh, drove him into the earth, his feet firmly planted on the earth through a thorn in the flesh that would teach him humility and dependency on God. And Paul learned something through that thorn that God's grace is sufficient. So what I'm saying here is John sees these tribulation saints 
and they're with God and they're rejoicing. But folks, we need to remember back to while they were on the earth, just like us, they were going, in fact, even more so than us because they lived through the tribulation, they were going through hardships and persecutions and trials and they were going through many difficulties. And so we need to understand that before we as believers get home, we might have to go through some tough times. But look at what he says of them in Revelation chapter 20. Because what a wonderful testimony chapter 20 is to the outcome of God's saints. Beginning in verse 4 of chapter 20, John says, Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. And I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image or had not received its mark on their foreheads or on their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such, the second death has no power. But they will be priests of God and of Christ. And they will reign with him for a thousand years. What a glorious outcome. But boy, what they had to go through. So be encouraged. You might be going through hardship today and persecution today. But that is not the final chapter in a believer's life. Christ will write the final chapter when we're with Him for all of eternity. And that's what John sees. Secondly, what I want you to notice with me is what John hears. Look at verses 3 and 4. He says, And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy, all nations will come and worship you for your righteous acts have been revealed. John not only sees them standing on this glassy sea, but John hears them and he hears their song of triumph. They're singing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now somebody says, what in the world's being referred to there? Well, you remember the song of Moses, Exodus chapter 15. What had just happened in Exodus 15? Well, the children of Israel had been delivered out of Egypt. And God led them out into the wilderness. He was sending them on to the promised land. And the first place he sent them was right up to the edge of the Red Sea. And so at first glance, it might appear that God was a poor commander-in-chief, but not so. You see, God was about to teach him something. Because you'll remember what happened to Pharaoh. He had told Moses and Aaron, take your people and go. Go out into the wilderness and worship your God. And while you're out there, pray for me too. And he sent the children of Israel out of Egypt. But then Pharaoh started having some second thoughts. What have I done? We've lost our workforce now in Egypt. The Hebrews were our slaves. And so Pharaoh gathered his armies together in his chariot and he sent them out after the children of Israel. And the children of Israel saw the Egyptians coming and they panicked because they had nowhere to go. And God said, Moses, I'm going to, tell my, I'm going to show my children today about my deliverance. I'm going to deliver them by my strong hand. And from this day on, they're going to know of my deliverance and my power. I mean, you would think after the Red Sea, they would never doubt God again. But we know they did. 
So God says to Moses, lift up, your, lift up your hand, lift up your staff, and God divides the Red Sea, and the children of Israel go through on dry ground. Pharaoh's army sees this, and they go pursuing uh, the, the children of Israel, and then God has the waters come crashing in. Can you imagine being a Hebrew, and you're safe on the other side, and you're looking back at Pharaoh's army, and all of a sudden you see the water come crashing in and destroyed, destroyed the army. What'd they do? They began celebrating. They began singing the song of Moses, a song of deliverance. And Miriam, you'll recall how Miriam got out her tambourine and she got all the ladies together with their tambourines and they went around uh, playing their tambourines and singing the song of Moses, singing a song of deliverance. Now how does that apply to this? These tribulation saints, they've been through hardship and oppression in the world just like the children of Israel went through in Egypt. And yet God has brought them through. Yes, they went through hardships, but now they're on the other side. They've been delivered and they're able to sing of God's saving grace. But not only do they sing the song of Moses, but I want you to notice he says here that they also sing the song of the Lamb. Remember back in Revelation chapter 5, they started singing the song of the Lamb of God. They sang a new song, John said in chapter 5, saying, Worthy are thou to take the book and to break its seals, for thou wast slain. And this purchase for God with thy blood, men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. How is it that they've experienced this ultimate deliverance? It's through the cross of Calvary, through the shed blood of Christ, that we will be delivered. Amen? And only through the shed blood of Christ that one of these days we will be standing before the throne of God and worshiping God and singing praises to God, singing the same song of deliverance that Moses and his people sang, but an added dimension to it, singing also of the Lamb of God. Now John sees next a smoke-filled temple and it's open. The word refers to the Holy of Holies. And, and, and John sees seven angels coming out of the Holy of Holies and one of the four living creatures that, that we've been introduced to before hands them bowls full of the wrath of God. Now folks, you'll recall how bowls were part of the furnishings of the temple in the Old Testament. Now the image here is not that they're going to slowly pour out the contents of these bowls, but they're going to dump out the whole content of these bowls. And verse 8 is reminiscent of how the book of Exodus closed out. The book of Exodus closed out by the smoke and the glory of God so filling the temple that you could not even enter into it. And here it's a picture of the imminent doom of the earth dwellers until the job of judgment is complete. Now remember, those on the earth who have not come to Christ, they are without excuse. They've been warned time and time again. What's about to happen? They're without excuse. Thirdly, I want you to notice with me the seven final plagues that, that we see unfolded in, in chapter 16. In chapter 16 he says, Then I heard a loud voice from the temple telling the seven angels, Go and pour out on the earth the seven bowls of the wrath of God. And so the first angel went and poured out his bowl on the earth and harmful and painful sores came upon the people who bore, bore the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. The second angel poured out his bowl into the sea and it became like the blood of a corpse and every living thing died that was in the sea. The third angel poured out his bowl into the rivers and springs of water and they became blood. And I heard the angel in charge of the water say, Just are you, O Holy One, who, who is and who was. For you brought these judgments, for they've shed the blood of saints and prophets. And you've given them blood to drink. It's what they deserve. 
And I heard the altar saying, Yes, Lord God, the Almighty, true and just are your judgments. The fourth angel poured out his bowl on the sun, and it was allowed to scorch people with fire. They were scorched by the fierce heat, and they cursed the name of God who had power over these plagues. They did not repent or give him glory. The fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and its kingdom was plunged into darkness. People gnawed their tongues in anguish and cursed the God of heaven for their pain and sores. They did not repent of their deeds. The sixth angel poured out his bowl on the great river Euphrates and its water was dried up to prepare the way for the kings from the east. And I saw coming out of the mouth of the dragon and out of the mouth of the beast and out of the mouth of the false prophet three unclean spirits like frogs for they are demonic spirits performing signs who go abroad to the kings of the whole world to assemble them for the battle on the great day of God the Almighty. Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. And they assembled them in the place that in the Hebrew is called Armageddon. The seventh angel poured out his bowl into the air, and a loud voice came out of the temple from the throne saying, It is done. And there were flashes of lightning and rumbling, peals of thunder, and a great earthquake such as there had never been since man was on the earth. So great was that earthquake, the great city was split into three parts, and the cities of the nations fell. And God remembered Babylon the great to make her drain the cup of the wine of the fury of his wrath. And every island fled away, and no mountains were to be found, and great hailstones about 100 pounds each fell from heaven on people, and they cursed God for the plague of the hell because the plague was so severe. Now chronologically chapter 19 which will detail for us the battle of Armageddon falls in chronologically right in behind chapter 16. We've seen that over and over again in the book of Revelation too. There'll be chapters that advance the narrative and then in between them there'll be these little interlude spaces that give us more detail about what's going on. Chapter 17, 18 will fill in some of the detail, but it's like 19 follows chronologically 16. Now, chapter 16 has been called the great chapter of the Bible. That's what people have nicknamed chapter 16, the great chapter of the Bible. Because in chapter 16, John hears a great voice. There's great heat. There's the great river Euphrates. There's the great day of God Almighty. There's a great earthquake. There's the great city. There's a great hailstorm. This is an exceedingly great plague. And so people refer to it as the great chapter. Now look at these different bowls. And we need to hurry here. But look in verse 2. A loathsome and malignant sore comes upon those who had the mark of the beast and worshipped his image. Loathsome and malignant. Used together these words stress that these sores are exceedingly painful. The word sore is the Greek equivalent of the Latin word from which we get our word Ulcer. So these ulcers that break out on people. This reminds us of one of the plagues that God sent on the Egyptians. Then the second bowl in verse 3. The first bowl was nothing like the first trumpet judgment we saw in chapter 6. But the second bowl is a lot like the second trumpet judgment. Just a lot more intense. Here again we think of what happened in Egypt. In that plague, the Nile turned into blood. But this judgment here is universal. Not only will the uh, oceans turn to blood, but we're told that everything in them dies. Donald Gray Barnhouse was a favorite pastor and theologian in America for decades. Pastored the great, the tenth, Avenue Presbyterian Church in Philadelphia. Listen to what Barnhouse said about this plague right here, this bowl. He says, That then which has always been the symbol of salvation, which is the blood, 
That which has always been the symbol of salvation in the midst of life becomes the symbol of condemnation in the midst of death. They had refused the salvation that would have come to them from the blood of the one who is life. They now receive condemnation from the blood that symbolizes death. Then the third bowl. What happened to the oceans of the world now happens to the fresh water. By the time the third bowl is poured out, water is already in short supply. And look now, there's no water to drink. I tell you what, this judgment seems so harsh that in the next few verses, John kind of calls a little time out and an angel steps forward to once again remind everybody that God's judgments are just. Everything God's doing is just. What God is doing is taking vengeance for His children. We don't take vengeance, but God takes vengeance for His children. And so here the unbelievers are only reaping what they've sown. You see, He says, they shed the blood of the saints. They shed the blood of the prophets. And now what they're getting is blood. Then the fourth ball. The sun was dark. A third of the sun was darkened. Uh, in the fourth trumpet rather. Now in the fourth bowl the reverse happens. So here are men craving water. They're thirsting to death. And what does God do? God turns up the heat. No water. They're parched. God turns up the heat, makes it worse. Then the fifth bowl, beginning in verse 10, this judgment is directed against the Antichrist. Remember what God did in the book of Exodus? He brought darkness on Pharaoh and the Egyptians. Well, here he brings darkness on the Antichrist and those who follow the Antichrist. The sixth bowl, verse 12. No specific assault on mankind. Instead, he dries up the Euphrates. He, we're told here that what he's doing is he's getting everything ready so all the armies can come from the east, cross the Euphrates, going in to the plain of Megiddo where the battle of Armageddon is going to take place. Then the seventh bowl, verse 17. Just like Jesus said from the cross, it is finished. God's voice from heaven announces that His judgment is complete. And so this bowl ushers in an earthquake that's so great, Jerusalem is spoken of as being split in three sections and the cities of the nations fall. In fact, from verse 20, we see that the topography of the entire earth is changed. And if that's not enough, massive hailstorms fall. Tremendous judgments that God is finally and completely unleashing on an unbelieving earth. I'll give you three lessons in closing quickly. Lesson number one, the hardness of the human heart is remarkable. Did you notice that in this chapter after all of these bowls... They were so severe and men were in misery and they were suffering. What would you expect men to be doing? You would expect men to be falling down before God and crying out for mercy. But instead, over and over again, we read that men only hardened their heart. And they got more stubborn in their refusal to turn to God. It's no wonder that the book of Hebrews tells us today if you hear his voice, do not harden your heart. Is your heart today tender and moldable and pliable to God? If it's not, beware. You see, there's a truth that's proclaimed in the Bible that if we harden our heart against God's word... It's like another callous layer is added to our heart so that when we hear God's word the next time, we're even more likely not to respond. 
Then another layer of callousness. Then the next time we hear his voice, we're even more likely again not to respond. A hard heart is a dangerous thing. It ought to be our prayer, God, any time I hear your word, your truth, make my life like soft clay that you can mold me and make me and just do anything you want to do with me. Amen? A second truth I want to give you today is that God is not looking the other way. We look at some of the headlines today and what are we tempted to think? We're tempted to think, God, do you not see what all is going on on the earth? Do you not care? And the Bible assures us that God has a sense of perfect timing. God sees. He sees everything. He knows everything. His timing is perfect. Everything is operating according to His plan. God is long-suffering and patient today giving people a chance to repent. But the day is going to come that the door will be shut and it will be too late. Third and final truth. God's children will not fail to receive their reward. God's children may be hated and persecuted and even killed and imprisoned. But again, I remind you here that God's children or John sees God's saints standing with him with harps in their hands. And they are with Christ for all of eternity. God's arm is not too short to save. His eye is not too dim to see. God rewards His children. And so what do we need to do? We need to wake up and persevere. 1 Corinthians 15.52 says, Be steadfast, unmovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your work in the Lord is not in vain. You know what I do for this world or what I do for myself? One of these days it's going to be in vain. But what I do for Jesus Christ is not in vain. So how am I investing my life? How am I using my time and talent and resources? Am I about the master's business? We don't need to grow discouraged in this world and think, You know what? God doesn't see anymore. God... The, the righteous suffer and the wicked seem to prosper and I'm just going to give up on serving the Lord and doing what? No! God will reward His children in time. Don't you ever doubt that. And so I don't care what kind of discouragement you might be going through today or how you might be tempted to give up. The Bible says you wake up, you persevere, and you redeem the time. Make the most of your opportunities. And in one of these days when you stand before the Lord, you'll hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. You might not hear those words until then. But you'll hear them then. And so whatever we go through now, we will surely see then that it was worth it all. It was worth it all. You stay in the battle. Stay strong. Grow in the Lord. And you one day will receive the Lord's reward.